Is this mic turned on? Wax poetic. Hi, kids. I'm a dinosaur hunter BMX rider. Long division sure comes in handy. All the little girls dream of one day biting into a corn dog and smiling at the camera. If I ran the web, you could email dead people. Wax poetic. Just say no to family values. In the terrarium is herpes. Herpes is a hermit crab. And I don't give a moment's focus to who does or doesn't like the sound of my voice. This is Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. So what if I write a poem like a song? Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Wax Poetic. Here on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5, I'm R.C. Weslowski. The voice is back, and I'm Pamela Bentley, you're the co-host Yeah, today. well, I was going to say I was thankful for all the co-hosts who were filling in for me uh, over the last few weeks when I had laryngitis, so I really appreciate that. Yeah. Including yourself for doing a lot of oh, uh, the hard work of uh, running this show. That appreciation. And uh, we have in studio today uh, Richard Kemick. Do you want Richard Kelly Kemick or Richard Kemick? Oh, just Richard's fine. Okay. Yeah. If you want to find him on Twitter, it's at Richard Kelly right. Kemick, but you right. only use the two names in real life. Right. Yeah. 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 So we're super uh, excited to have you on the show today. Your new book is Caribou Run. It's an outstanding book, and we're going to have you, you uh, start off with a poem for us. Thank, I'd love to, and thank you very much for having me. Um, I thought the poem I'd start off with is Hooves. Uh, it's, a, it's a villanelle. Hooves. Hoof tracks are galloped in the mud of spring, but the laws of atomic theory tell me we never really touch other things. Cobwebs of distance divide everything. Our fingers can't feel the grooved bark of trees or hoof tracks pressed into the mud of spring. So should we tell the wind beneath the crow's wing or the child asleep on his mother's knees that we don't really touch other things? I know I won't find two nuclei touching, but I found your shape left on my sheets, a hoof track left in the mud of spring. In the ocean, I heard the humpback sing, and I knew I'd give it song my body since I'd never be touched by another thing. And in knowing this, there is something lost in the space molecular mass needs. The hoof is what's real. The track is nothing because we never really touch other things. (laughs) Wow. That's very kind. (laughs) Thank you, R.C. Taking care of my sound tech, sound uh, tech uh, needs. That was, that was just some hooves running across. Yeah, the right. <laughs> right. running. Across I brought several caribou with me yeah, today. Yeah. So yeah. the book is called Caribou Run, and the thing that's extraordinary about it, which you've just demonstrated with that poem, is that you use all this scientific research and and information about caribou, and then you also tie it in um, to everyday life, right. and and intimacy, and you so you use it as metaphor, you use it as itself, you use it, and then you have like form poetry, and then you have poetry like where it's like conversation with God about <laughs> making caribou, you know, it's like yeah. so there's all this lyric kind of just conversational. There's form poetry. It's amazing. It, it seems to me like it must have taken years to <laughs> collect all of this writing around this idea of caribou. Right. Yeah. It did. I. It did. Yes. Take a, take a little while. I. I was really fortunate um, to work with a uh, 
like the, the dean of science at the University of New Brunswick. I was living in Fredericton when I wrote this. Uh, his name is Stephen Hurd, and he's fantastic. So having someone on the inside lane of science, if you will, helped out helped out a lot with that regard. Um, yeah, I really the research of the book I found far more. Uh, exciting than I than I would have originally anticipated. And reading these scientific journals, the a lot of poems just seem to write themselves. When they, there's these mm. uh, ex- beautiful and exceptional concepts that are told quite eloquent through science, um, because I I think science like poetry practices this strict economy of words, <laughs> this idea of getting at the heart of the subject matter. In a lot of ways, I found that conversation yeah w- was really refreshing and, and thrilling in a lot of ways. So they're both recording those hoof prints. The things that we can't touch, poetry and science, both kind of do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, I think we've talked not here with you, but we've talked on the show before about uh, the science and mm-hmm. their, and descriptive science. Often, like I think you just suggested, has a poetics of its own in the right. language that it uses. And sometimes you can just take a, a chunk of uh, a poet uh, scientific uh, explanation and plop it in your poem, and you go, "Wow, that's pretty good." Right. 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 Yeah. I, I, a lot of times, I find the there's kind of these this hard and fast line between art and science. Um, well, seen in the university a lot of times, right? That you're either in the faculty of arts or in the faculty of science. But uh, it's a it's a great combination of the two, I find, and the, and the two often complement each other in a way that we wouldn't we wouldn't often expect, often anticipate. Yeah, yeah. Um, was all of this research driven, or did you go out into the wild and live at all with the caribou or anything like that? <laughs> right, uh, it is research driven primarily. There's a, a wonderful book and film called Being Caribou, um, written by Karsten Hur, Hur and Leanne Allison, I believe. Um, and I was in contact with Karsten quite a bit because they lived with caribou for, uh, I want to say, six months to a year. Yeah, following the same herd in their migration path across the Yukon. Why caribou? Why'd you pick caribou? Well, I the uh, original idea was wolves. I really like animals. Uh, and I love wolves uh, quite a bit. But I found in writing about wolves, I, I was... It just came across as like sappy love, love mm. poetry. So I thought the structure of the this caribou migration offered a, a great structure for a collection as a whole, and that uh, there were moments of deep poetry within it and deep science within it. And I was mm. interested in the conversation between the two. And then I thought, well, if I'm writing about caribou, I can also include some wolf poems so uh, yeah right, right. And I, I guess people have written more about wolves than uh, yeah. caribou I exactly would think. yeah 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 and that uh the poetic conceptualization of animals that we often don't think of as i don't know grand or sublime yeah. such such as such as caribou is often passed over in favor of something like wolves yeah. well and you get and at so that forth. you know in some of the poems because they have this awkward they're like moose in that way right they right. have this awkward majest, majestic <laughs> right. and um the one of the poems i mentioned just before we went on air was the one about you know where god is talking about making caribou and right. yeah. and it's very vernacular and i love that piece as well because it's very informal and there's one that is like in stark contrast to the formalist right villanelle right, right. so 
right. let's hear let's hear some more poems. Oh, I would I love just, to. Sure. I, I read this when I was out in the hammock one afternoon, and this was <laughs> like on one of our very very early spring days, and just read poem after poem. And then as people would wander through the yard, I'd say, "Hey, listen to this." Yeah. <laughs> That's very kind. Um, is there anything in particular you'd like me to read, or should I just just take I'll a just shot? Jump in there, yeah. Sure. And see what happens. Sure. Um, this one is. Uh, called caribou moss, uh, and it's a caribou moss. Caribou primarily eat caribou moss. Okay. Believe it, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah, caribou moss. Growing in hot and cold climates, as if the earth had no say in what we can and cannot be. Its body, a symbiotic weave of fungi and algae hardly needs rain or dirt and knows the modesty of not living outside yourself, spreads three millimeters a year. Touch it. Grow your hand across. The coil of frosted wire that fits within your palm lines has been crawling over tundra for the longer part of a century. Even the smallest things seem to be so much older than we are. Without a root system to tunnel away from light, every part of it can be seen. The offering of its entire self into the vast mouth of sky, its pronged reach growing into a million small antlers. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> I have that little surprise at the end. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear another one. Sure. I just want to hear the poetry. Sure, sure. That's very, that's very kind. Um, okay, let, I can switch gears a bit. Let me think here. Um, so the idea of writing a book about such a fixed subject like the care of mm -hmm. migration is that it would, as, as you mentioned earlier, force me to work within different, yeah. uh, different forms, different styles. There's only so many free verse lyrics you can write about poetry, <laughs> uh, write about caribou until your wife threatens to leave you. So uh, it, it, it forced me to experiment with a couple different forms. So um, there's one here. Uh, I, oh, uh, so for example, I would never have written a Ghazal before this right. collection. Um, and so I gave, I gave one a shot here. It's called the Ghazal of the Caribou Fence. Uh, caribou were and still are hunted... Um, in a way that they, uh, a corral is made, if you will, and then caribou are trapped in the corral oh, okay. and, then, and then butchered from there. So this is called Ghazal of the Caribou Fence. The fox yips of hunters and the herd gallops uphill into the corral's throat. Sinew snares wait with an inhuman patience. In the five-foot storage tank, a Humboldt squid, Diablo Rojo, her tentacles corkscrew against glass, her body pulsing kaleidoscopic. Sockeye spill themselves into their natal streams, mouths frowning into masks of Greek tragedy, gulping the broken glass of air. A grisly prize open takeout containers like clams, nails clicking. The neon of a Chinese restaurant smears his shadow across the asphalt. The fox finds the fallen nest as a knife finds a tomato and the snow will hold the juice like a cutting board. Yeah, I love that last line of the snow. Oh, thank the, you. The, the red, yeah, the snow becoming red. It's just, mm -hmm. but in a much more... No, 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 that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the snow became red. Yeah. But yeah, that was in the first version. That was the first draft. Yeah, okay, yeah, but, at least, yeah. 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 How do I say that in a more poetic way? Right. <laughs> um, the, 
uh, the book itself. We should mm-hmm. talk about the book itself because it's quite beautiful. It's got this this round of caribou on the front, but then it's uh, I like all of the ice house poetry that I've seen lately. It has that beautiful tactile, right? It almost right. feels like a hide, yeah, um, mm. on it. And uh, this is uh, thanks to Ice House Poetry Poetry from Goose Lane Editions because they sent us this, and I might Perfect. not have even you might not have even been on the radar, they, yeah. right? And I grabbed it before rc got it because they actually send them to rc's because i work here i always get first dips <laughs> and uh yeah so the book itself is wonderful and you're launching it right now you're doing yes. a little mini tour yeah um i've uh goose house uh, a very good friend of mine michael pryor who's published a phenomenal book of, of poetry it's his debut collection as well with vehicle press it's called model disciple um Michael and I are going on a cross-country tour this spring, summer. Uh, We have a Vancouver reading tonight uh, at the Lido Cafe with uh, Vincent Calistro and then uh, local poet uh, Sherida Warner, and both of them are are just exceptional poets. Sherida came out with a collection a little while ago called Floating is Everything, which is, it's just beautiful by Nightwood. Yeah, it's it's a really great collection. Um, we're reading tonight at the Lido Cafe at 7 p.m. Uh, it's the first reading of the new Tonic Poetry Reading Series in, in Vancouver, uh, mm-hmm. organized by Kayla Zaga and Adele Barkley. Yeah, and if you want to know more about that series, I was saying I was driving around mm-hmm. doing errands two Saturdays ago. Make a Better World was on, and uh, Britt Bachman, who's one of the programmers for that show, had um, Kayla and Adele on, and I was like, I recognize those voices. Right. And they were talking about tonic reading series that they've just started up, and this is the inaugural one this af- this evening at sure. 7 o'clock at the Lido Cafe. So you get to be the very first. It's thrilling. You're going to go down in history. Right, right, yeah. Who knows yeah. how long this reading series might last, yeah. right? When somebody starts something new, you just never know what's going to happen. My friend who, I, who I'm staying with right now, in Vancouver, Googled the Lido just a little while ago, and they happy hour I think runs from four till eight, and it, it's three dollar drinks. Oh, isn't so that unreal? Get there at the get beginning of the quick. reading. Yeah, yeah, you can get there, get drunk, and then listen to poetry. He's that's, by far your vibe. more excited about the happy hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, did you open this up because you were suggesting maybe I could ask him to read it? Uh, well, there were three there that I was uh, thinking of, but yeah, that was yeah. One of so them the for sure. what is left behind was one of the ones I was talking sure. about before we went on air, and when I read it, I was just so struck by the the metaphor that you or the simile that you use in the end of the first stanza, which you will, if you wouldn't mind reading this one, um, it's, I mean, it's halfway through the book. So the the book talks about the caribou going back to the same grounds to right. breed every year, which is extraordinary. It is, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And so this is like, you've, you've described at this point some of that, and this is like after the breeding, right? So right. it's a bit graphic. Yeah, be prepared. Sure, sure. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt your heart you a little bit. <laughs> um, so, if you wouldn't mind reading that one, course, I'd love I, to hear it. I would love to. Um, yeah. So, as you mentioned, the caribou return to uh, these maternal grounds each year, and it's the same. It's roughly in the, in the same vicinity each year, much the same way salmon would. Um, except the whole herd goes to the, more or less the, the mm-hmm, same place. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is to what is left behind. Altogether, the cows and newborns vacate the calving grounds, turning southwards once more. The twisted corpses of stillborns, no longer protected, are strewn across the barrens like tangled puddles of clothing on the hardwood floors of young and honest lovers, shed without restraint or remembrance. 
On the drive back to Calgary, as day collapses, the prairie highway lets go of its bodies. High beams tracing cotton swath, released from reaching fingers of wheat. On a wide turn, with the windows down, the smell of the dead skunk on the roadside. And even at 1.20 an hour, it takes another ten minutes before distance leaves it behind. Death lingers in the fan belt. The childless cows are now called unattached, and you'd think with that name they'd wander lost for the next thousand years, but they are almost impossible to distinguish from their maternal reflections. The only difference is their silence. Not having young to call, they will not groan a sound until the rut in October. The face of casual calamity. In a place thought vacant, there is no room for grief. The phone rings as I enter the house. On the other end is my father's voice. I hide to fly back, Richard, before the Parkinson's defeated my mother. I picture an opalescent cell planting a flag in her brainstem, and I think about the flag, and I think about the wheat fields, and I think about all that I need to, to not think about the skunk, my grandmother, and the sun-scorched stillborns that litter the barrens beneath a mortal daylight, and the rough-legged hawks beginning to circle, diving into carcasses with the heavy force of teenagers jumping, hands held and naked, into the reservoir, their mortally beautiful bodies. That's awesome. Oh, that's very kind. That that image of the of the mother the cows not making a sound until mm, right. they uh, until they mate again rut uh, later on that just blows me away. That whole little mm-hmm. thing of the dead calves and that. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Um, I I was very very fortunate. Don Mackay edited this collection, um, and one of the things I appreciate so much about Don's writing, yeah, is his gift of this seemingly effortless metaphor and that there's these wonderful connections he draws between birds, primarily birds. Don, you write a lot about birds, but uh, (laughs) uh, about birds and then how we navigate our own worlds and then Mm. in in the connections between that. And in writing this collection, one of, one of the things I attempted to emulate the most, yeah, was, was Don's, uh, yeah, preternatural gift of metaphor mm-hmm. and, and trying to trying to focus it in the same way yeah there was another one. Oh, okay. go ahead there was another one that I, I can't remember it off the top of my head but it had to do with it connects about four different things um, one of them was a child thing and it was like a longer poem I think it's like three pages long but I'm not gonna be able to find it and it but it it does the same thing like you do with the caribou the skunk the grandmother the right. and it was um, there's like four different things going on in it right I don't right. know if you know which one I'm talking about but we're listening to Richard Kel- uh, Richard Kemick today on wax poetic he's reading from his book caribou run and you are listening to Vancouver co-op radio 100.5 FM CFRO. <laughs> Do you uh, know is that the one that you were thinking of? RC? That maybe one? Uh, the one I was thinking of was the uh, postpartum grade ten biology. That's one, the one, yes. Which I, I love. And oh, I, if you're you. taking requests, I like to. I would love to hear that. Of course. Yeah. Um, but I'm also curious because you, um, not quote, but you know, you, at the start of the a few of the poems, you've got the Rat River Trapper. Uh, right. You've got a yeah. couple of s- explorers yeah. and uh, scientists. I'm wondering how much. Um, did you tap into First Nations uh, accounts of the caribou right. uh, of that of that area and stuff like that and adapt it or just inform it just in general? Certainly, yeah. The, um, so the Gwich'in people of uh, uh, of the Yukon, 
yeah, um, have a, uh, a relationship with a, uh, with the caribou herd, which I think it's impossible for anyone else to fully understand and, and comprehend. Mm. So because of that impossibility, I felt that I would only, yeah, there's no way I could do that justice um, in, a, in a poetic form when it's impossible for me to understand that relationship and mm-hmm. then translate it translated into verse uh i the myths Gwich'in myths of the caribou are some of the most fascinating uh encounters of the animal that i read so i tried to incorporate those as as much as i could um yeah it, it is very it is very tricky terrain between wanting to recognize how important the caribou is as an animal to a people but then also appropriating that voice yeah mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a very difficult balance and one that I I guess I erred on the side of caution of not wanting to to over to overstep on. Sure. Um, Can you think yeah. of an example of where you borrowed something from one of those myths and put it? Certainly, yeah. Um, well, like uh, the Gazal of the Caribou Fence, which which I just read. I guess it's not a myth. That's how uh, the Gwich'in people uh, used to, and then there's still um, used to hunt caribou, and there's these wonderful relics because the tundra right. holds structures for so long it's like the face of the moon so there's these hmm. phenomenal relics um up up north uh for myth there's this yeah ex- there's this beautiful myth of how uh the uh the caribou and uh human beings exchanged hearts and then that way they always Whoa. carry a piece of themselves so that in itself <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's like the most beautiful thing i've ever heard but then at the same wow. time i think i would only serve to do that myth injustice if I tried to form it into a right. poem because it is already a poem right all, yeah. all I would be doing is attaching my name to it so that I world view yeah. exactly exactly yeah so I quote it in part of the book because I do think it certainly adds to the depth of the relationship but by no means do I use that in my own in my own voice mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's hear the, the postpartum one. It's, it's a, a little long longer, one, and we should have time for but that. But that's what we get to do on Co-op Radio. <laughs> and that true. was exactly the one I was talking about, RC, so thank you. The, uh, with the metaphors in this one, I I had to map them out to keep them straight. Yeah. I, yeah. My biggest fear, aside from loneliness, is like <laughs> writing mixed metaphors. So I had this elaborate... Me- it looked like I was invading Europe by the time it was done. So I'm I'm very... Pleased and, and thankful that it. That it's like it, Inception, that it went well. like the plot. Yeah. Right. plot yeah, I, don't, for Inception. I don't know if I'm sleeping or if it's some nightmare <laughs> that I'm just living through. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'll grab Fa- it. Page 37. 37. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so it, this is called Postpartum for the, from the perspective of grade 10 biology. Uh, it quotes uh, a grade 10 teacher I had called Mr. Garner. Um, and the quote is, uh, the anthropomorphizing of animals is the lowest form of science immediately between, uh, beneath alchemy and notions of love, if the two can be considered separate. The only thing love and evolve have in common is the lettering. Okay. Uh, one. Before he said it, our teacher had told us that when a wolf's pups are starving, it'll take one far from the den, kill it, eat it, come back, and regurgitate it for the litter. A girl who I'd spent the past two months trying to date raised her hand and said that otters tie seaweed around their pups so they don't float away. So, he asked, so not all animals are cruel. He nods for a moment, pausing to examine the shape of her argument. Why do you think the wolf goes away? What? 
Why do you think the wolf hides from the den before devouring the pup? You see, the anthropomorphizing of animals is the lowest form of science. After 254 days of gestation, carrying him in the cocoon of her body, she only has an hour of postpartum feeding before he drains her. Kicking herself free, she walks two meters and for the first time obtains the distance needed for clarity. A week before my sister turned 23, her girlfriend's parents asked her to be a pallbearer for their only daughter. Thirteen years from now, I'll be sitting at the kitchen table across from my own daughter, who is coloring yet another bird on a scrap of piece of paper. Like me, she becomes obsessed with things, can't let go. What do you want to be when you grow up? A parrot. <laughs> I tell her of the time I became a caribou and her eyelids open until I see full rings of white around her irises. She believes me to the extent I believe myself. At the kitchen table, we open up ourselves like museum cabinets. At the end of the funeral, my sister shook her head and said she couldn't do it, her hand hovering over the wood and brass handle. The girl's father rested his arm upon my sister's shoulder and touched their foreheads together. He whispers, we need to be more than what our bodies demand of us. The calf rises with short-circuit muscle mechanics, all knee and hip socket, the cow bobs her head along the thread of a vertical plane until he jostles himself forward, buckling at her hooves exhausted. She turns and trots four meters farther. Two. And he begins to write what he sang on the blackboard, a film of white dusting his fingers. His back turned, I look up past the handful of student students copying it down to the five-liter jars of pickled animals. Alchemy and notions of love, if the two can be considered separate. There's a cat whose forepaw has pressed itself against the glass. The fleshy yellow of his paw pad is the only colors in the silt. Outside, the sun floats a higher angle, and I watch the reflection of our class grow across the jar's bend. The wind ramping off her pelage, she pivots, grunts from her chest, and nods again. With a lifetime of movement, suicide comes as stillness. If her calf cannot continue to move, she will once again push him from her body. We buried my guinea pig in the back corner of my parents' yard, her shoebox coffin laid beneath the poplar. I was too old to cry, but did anyways. Now I'm living alone, and one evening I see a blur scamper along the baseboard. I put mouse traps out for three weeks, but it eats the food right from the trap's teeth, leaving half behind as some sort of humility. I resist naming it. Another week and the thin metal bites down, gets its tail. The mouse clatters across the hardwood, writhing, but when it sees me, turns still as water. I pick up the trap, its body hanging like a dewdrop, take it out onto the street, and have to bring down the scrap of wood twice before it's dead. If she migrates south alone, you'll almost be able to hear the weight that rattles loose behind her, like soup cans behind a single-passenger limousine. It's the calf's scent she is trying to understand, trying to decipher it amongst the scribbling of wind leaves. 3. Have in common is the lettering. An unexpected silence grows, our desks creaking beneath our weight. 
He paces the classroom, searching our expressions, wanting someone to challenge him, to point to the selfishness of reproduction, its naive attempt at immortality, but that we have within us things unseen of great weight, color, and expanse, like butterfly wings cutting through caterpillar skin. The bell rings, and I go to talk to Otter Girl. He watches everyone leave, standing in front of the board, forgotten like a monument. She can only acquire his smell by dislocation, the things you assumed were a part of you but only recognize when you're gone. She needs to ensure that they will see each other through the coming fog of chaos. The calf rises and their eye contact is held thick as leather. My sister believes in loss the way my science teacher believed in love. I'm unsure of either, but will defer to otters tying their seaweed and wolves tasting their pups, to parrot feathers and a handful of earth tossed over polished wood, to animal-shaped clouds of silt, shoeboxes, tails of field mice, and the floral growth of butterfly wings. In grade 11, I'll learn that lanugo is the soft, fine hair that covers the body of a fetus. In the womb's peach light, we aspire to be animals. And we are. Unfaltering, the cow continues to pump her head, her neck rolling like waves of deep sound, refusing to break the hold of her eyes. Thank you. Yeah. No, that's wow. too kind. Thank you. That was so. <laughs> that's very. That that's very nice. That whole thing about the smell and mm -hmm. uh, and what happened. Then, like, if it if it doesn't follow, if it doesn't move, she behind. has to push itself, push it away like another suicide. It's so. Great. Yeah. And so nature poems, right? People go, Oh, nature poems. Come on, <laughs> folks. You're like nature. This is nature. I get so tired of people saying nature poems. <laughs> Nature's so dark, it's great. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, so our guest today has been Richard Kelly Kemick. And uh, here on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM, uh, we've got like 35, 40 seconds for announcements. Do you want to quickly Yeah, so there's the now? tonic reading tonight that Richard is in with three mm. other poets. Tomorrow night, 7 p.m., real writers are at the un un unspecified art space at 7 p.m. People's Co-op Bookstore is having the first Peter Cully memorial reading, they're calling it, with Leanne Brown, Daniel Danielle LaFrance, and Elisa Ferrari. And on Friday, there's the Jordan Scott lecture. Jordan Scott has been the writer in residence at SFU, and he's finishing that up with a lecture at the SFU Vancouver. We had him on the show. He was great. May 26th, uh, that's next week, so we don't need to mention that. Uslam, Monday. Yes. Roger Blenman will be the feature, and sign-ups at 7 at Café de Soleil. There we go. Good. Thanks so much. That was brilliant. Thank so you glad so to much have for you having today. me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Pam, you're away for two weeks to Scotland. I have am. a great Scotland, trip. Ireland, and maybe Wales and England. I'm doing the Wise Tour. Wow. Oh, cool. sweet. Yeah. <laughs> have it's a great exciting. time. Yeah. And uh, Pam will be back in uh, three weeks, and I'll be here next week. And uh, no apologies necessary. Oh, I'm, I'm R.C. Weslowski. And I'm Pam Bentley. No apologies necessary with Jasmine Liddell is coming up next. You've been listening to Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. So what? So what? So what? So what?